This is hell. The kind of stuff that starts fights at the Thanksgiving dinner table. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host. Chuck Mertz producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new by you? How's your week going so far? Enjoying time with your dog alone? Oh, yeah. Uh, daddy, doggy, daughter time's going pretty well. <laughs> Sweet. Uh, we sleep on the couch together now. It's very wonderful. Oh, really? You pass out on the couch, like, uh, watching or doing something? No, it's or? intentional. Okay. Uh, and also, everyone listening out there, I know people like to make jokes on Twitter. I kiss my dog on the mouth, and I'm not going to apologize for my culture. <laughs> Our uh, couch we call the time machine because when you lay down on it, all of a sudden, time mysteriously moves forward in a very speedy way. This week's question from Elle is, what are you majoring in to get a job in the real world? What are you majoring in to get a job in the real world? This week's winner gets a book we featured on the show earlier this week, Eli Meyerhoff's Beyond Education, Radical Studying for Another World. Leave your response at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Alex... How are listeners responding to this week's question from hell so far? What are you majoring in to get a job in, quote-unquote, the real world? Jesse W. says, poetry. <laughs> Luke H. says, reality TV. Aaron D. says, alternate fact marketing. <laughs> MGB says, business. Gotta make it big, selling my cat's bathwater via Twitch. Mm. Frank W. says, serious answer, HVAC, and silly answer, upward failing punditry. No, HVAC sounds good. That's a pretty probably a very good choice there. And uh, finally, Garrett says, the easiest major you can obtain from the School of Hard Knocks. Oh, man. I am so tired of seeing people on Facebook saying that they graduated from the School of Hard Knocks. Man, just you got to stop doing that. Keep listening to hear all our listeners' responses and tune in later this week to find out if you've won. And in case you missed our interview from earlier this week with Eli Meyerhoff about his book, Beyond Education, Radical, Studying for Another World, you can find the first hour of this week's Hell, including our conversation with Eli at thisishell.com. And go back and listen to, uh, to that talk because I learned a lot about education from Eli and his book, Beyond Education. I never really thought that there are plenty of ways to learn other than what we call an education, which is weird because for several years we've been using the tagline, this is hell, where we make learning about evil fun. And I've stressed in many, many monologues and at many times during our show that what we're trying to do here is learn with you as we learn from our guests. In fact, the greatest compliment I ever received from a former student producer was when she was graduating and moving on to bigger and better things. She turned to me and said, I learned more working on This Is Hell than I did in my entire four years of college, which is a stinging indictment of Northwestern University or mere flattery that my ego happily gobbled up. Not only can learning happen in other ways than what we know as an education, that education is the institution that enforces our modernist, colonial, capitalist, statist, white supremacist, heteropatriarchal norms, placing itself as the author of what Eli calls the scripts of normative existence. No wonder college kids get so up in arms when the university continues its legacy of racism, having been founded on the backs of slaves in the slave market as the school turns a blind eye to its history of sexual discrimination as well. Education is the training ground, the indoctrination camp for everything wrong with capitalism. Instead of ensuring everyone has free and easy access to education, maybe we should start rethinking the education that's being provided in the first place. Today on This Is Hell, we do want to apologize in in advance for our interview, because our first interview 
may actually start a fight at your Thanksgiving dinner table. We truly are sorry that there's a good chance our guest topics won't go over that great as your bird is being carved. Our guest is David J. Silverman, author of the land, This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving. There's a lot we are absolutely certain about Thanksgiving. That's definitely not true. We have been told by guest after guest that our national origin myth is just that, a myth, a lie, a fiction. We tell ourselves so we don't have to face up to the facts about how the United States came to be and what happened to the civilizations that were here before white Europeans started invading and occupying this land, a land filled with numerous vibrant cultures and thriving societies. We'll be talking about what nobody wants to talk about at Thanksgiving, and that is the truth about the holiday. When we speak with David, who is professor of history at George Washington University, David is an award-winning writer who specializes in Native American, Colonial American, and American racial history. This is David's fifth book on Indigenous Americans. His most recent prior to This Land is Their Land being 2016's Thundersticks, Firearms, and the Violent Transformation of Native America. On tomorrow's show, we're going to start a series of interviews with the contributors to a new book, A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. Tomorrow, our guest will be Alyssa Battistoni, who wrote the or whose writing for the book focuses on labor and how it relates to the Green New Deal. We're always told that environmentalism and workers' concerns for their jobs are always in conflict. So what impact would a Green New Deal have on jobs? We'll find out what the Green New Deal means for work when we talk to Alyssa, who was on our show back in November of 2017 to discuss her Jacobin article, Living, Not Just Surviving. Working class movements must place social and ecological reproduction at the heart of their vision of the future. Other past guests who have written essays in A Planet to Win include Kate Aronoff and Thea Rio-Francos, and she is going to be on the show next week, Thea that is. Alyssa is a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard University and an editor at at Jacobin, and we'll have a moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. So this week, we started by re-examining exactly what education is, and if there are other better ways ways to learn. Coming up, we'll reconsider Thanksgiving, not as a time to give thanks and celebrate the United States, but a day of mourning and what has been lost. Next, we'll rethink labor's relationship with environmentalism as both relate to the Green New Deal. And of course, a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. This is Hell is honored to host our show on the traditional lands of the Treaty of Chicago and traditional Potawatomi territory. What I just read is based on a script the Canadian Football League uses prior to their Grey Cup championship each and every year. Before this year's game between the Hamilton Tiger Cats and the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, who crushed the Tiger Cats, the public address announcer told the packed stadium in Calgary that the CFL was honored to be playing the game in an area of what is known as Treaty 7 and wanted to honor the Nakoda Blackfoot Nation, whose land they were, well, they didn't say it, but occupying. Wouldn't it be cool if before Super Bowl LIV in Atlanta, the announcer said, the NFL is honored to host this year's Super Bowl on the traditional lands of the Treaty of New Ashota and traditional Cherokee territory. Wouldn't it be awesome if not only before the Super Bowl, but before every sporting event at every stadium, right before they sang that 
stupid national anthem that nobody sang at sports stadiums prior to McCarthyism and the exaggerated fear-mongering of the commie scare in the 1950s, because apparently the greatest generation was easy to frighten into submitting their freedom of speech and expression. It would be so incredible if before each and every game, at every level of sport, they'd honor the treaty that white people likely broke anyway, and the original occupiers of the land, the indigenous people. The mere mention might get it into people's heads that this land, the land they're on, the land where they're watching their beloved games being played was filled with earlier peoples and cultures that have been erased by genocide and ignorance. From now on, we will do just that here on This Is Hell. From this point forward, every week, we will recognize the Potawatomi and the Treaty of Chicago, even if it was a crappy treaty that, like most others, we probably broke. In other words, get used to hearing us saying... This is Hell is honored to host our show on the traditional lands of the Treaty of Chicago and traditional Potawatomi territory. Live from land stolen from the natives, this is Hell. Maybe you're listening to this while preparing your house for family and friends who are visiting for Thanksgiving. Maybe you're hearing our show while prepping the Thanksgiving meal or as you are actually putting the bird in or taking it out of the oven. The holiday is supposed to be about giving thanks for something. I'm not really sure what, but something. I've never really been clear what this holiday is actually about, and apparently history has been pretty unclear about it, too. Here to help us learn the true meaning of Thanksgiving, David J. Silverman is author of This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth County, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving. Welcome to This is Hell, David. Thanks for having me. David is professor of history at George Washington University and specializes in Native American, Colonial American, and American racial history. He is an award-winning author, and his most recent book prior to this one is 2016's Thundersticks, Firearms and the Violent Transformation of Native America. You write, serious critical history tends to be uh, hard on the living. It challenges us to see distortions embedded in the heroic national origin myths we have been taught since childhood. How traumatizing can critical history be? What what happens when that trauma is confronted by denialism? Well, I, you know, I think in the case of the Thanksgiving myth, it, it forces Americans to come to the, the realization that colonization was a bloody affair, uh, that it wasn't consensual, and that Native people didn't just disappear after the Thanksgiving dessert was served. And so what that means is we have to take a a more critical look uh, back on where our country came from um, to recognize that there are uh, colonial legacies um, that live with us to this very day, not least of all, uh, you know, the fact that we all live on on land seized from indigenous people and that the racial hierarchies that are so embedded in our society are a colonial legacy. It also forces us to take a more critical look at our present and our future and uh, you know, to, to ask ourselves you know, whether we want to do better than our forebears. In really general terms, it seems what we're trying to avoid is how the United States was born out of violence. Why don't we want to have a story of uh, an origin myth of the United States that ha- includes violence? Well, I think there's all kinds of reasons uh, for that kind of historical amnesia. I think prob- probably the most pressing ones, uh, pressing one to those who don't want to confront this history is they worry about what justice will look like moving forward if we acknowledge the truth. Um, my job is not to craft uh, policies that will uh, 
promote justice in our society. My job is to get the history right, uh, and so that's what I do. I think I think many white Americans in particular believe that the purpose of a history education is to create patriots, um, to cultivate people who are proud of, of their country's history, as opposed to people who can analyze their country's history critically. Can you, can you be both? Can you both be a patriot who does look at their history critically or does looking at history critically immediately eliminate any patriotism you may have? I'm proud to live in this country and I have a, a critical view of our, our nation's past. Um, I would ask anyone who uh, contends that, uh, that confronting the, the truth of history is antithetical to patriotism, uh, you know, why they want to live suspended in, in myth, uh, why they want to lie to themselves um, for the purpose of, of being proud. Uh, we should be proud based on the truth. Uh, rather than on falsehoods. But how can you be proud of acts of violence in our past? How can you uh, manage the patriotism when realizing that the United States was born out of genocide, slavery, and all these horrible things? How can you still maintain? I'm not saying you personally. I'm talking about people in general. How well, can you? I don't. Go ahead. I don't think we should be proud of that. <laughs> you know, I don't. Uh, where, where I think we can develop pride is in confronting that difficult past, honestly, and, and trying to make our future uh, gentler and, and more inclusive, uh, particularly of the descendant communities uh, who are the victims of that kind of violence. And that's what I got out of your book. One of the things that you were just mentioning is uh, this also the sense of justice when it comes to history. Uh, is there a fear from people who are in denial about our violent past? Is there a fear of retribution for that violent past? Oh, I uh, for certain. I think you know their uh, their their main concern is that there'll be a you know redistribution of of wealth um, in order to uh, address some of these these historical wrongs. Um, I think there's they also are often concerned that uh, folks who have previously been uh, voiceless or or powerless in our society will have a stake and want their interests represented. In, in, in our policies, uh, you know, so certainly uh, those are those are concerns from uh, those who are critical of addressing this history. So how does the way in which we celebrate Thanksgiving then, how might that undermine any potential for, let's say, reparations for Native Americans? Well, I, I think that's a reasonable question. Look, the, the Thanksgiving myth, as as it's been propagated in American society since the late 1800s, is a sanitized version of colonial American history. Um, the first thing it does is it sanitizes New England's history, right? It, it, it uh, refuses to address the fact that even the relationship between the Wampanoags and the English very quickly degenerated in, into violence, um, and eventually the terrible King Philip's War of 1675 76. It refuses to acknowledge that even in New England, colonists held slaves, and not just Africans as slaves, but indigenous people, including the Wampanoags, as slaves. But what the Thanksgiving myth also does is it takes that sanitized version of New England history and makes it a symbol for colonial America 
at large. Um, I think any reasonably thoughtful adult would readily concede that a shared meal is a very poor uh, representation of colonial indigenous relations. The more common features of colonial American history were Indian colonial wars and race-based slavery. And, uh, you know, as a historian, I would prefer for us to focus on those very real themes than the mythical Thanksgiving feast. I've often heard people in the North, people including me, uh, complain about the uh, denialism that we often hear from people in the South, from people who might fly Confederate flags, the denialism of the long legacy that continues of African-American slavery in the South. And it just always surprises me as a Northerner. I can't believe these people in the South. Look at all the denialism they have over African-American slavery. Yet here in the North, as your book points out, we seem to be even greater denialism of Native American slavery because it's something that never comes up. The the whole concept of Native American slavery, uh, which just won a National Book Award, I believe, a couple of years ago. We had the author of a book about Native American slavery was on our show to discuss it. So have we erased Native American slavery and the institution and legacy of slavery in the North far more than even the South has? Uh, I'm not sure if I can uh, determine whether it's more or less. I, I do think, though, uh, it's it's been common in American history circles to refuse to address that very basic feature of colonial American history. Um, yeah, as your listeners might know, given that you've had previous historians who specialize in this area, our best estimates nowadays are that somewhere between three and five million indigenous people suffered slavery at colonial hands in the hemisphere during the greater colonial era. And, you know, that, that higher number is, is 40% of the estimated volume of the transatlantic slave trade. So this wasn't some kind of eccentric exception uh, to historic patterns of, of slavery in, in the colonies. Um, there's no question about it that uh, the North has engaged in its own historical amnesia, uh, just as, as the South has. And I think the Thanksgiving myth and its whitewashing of, of Indian colonial warfare um, colonists' aggressive and underhanded engrossment of, of Native American land, and not least of all, enslavement of, and, and, and forced indentured servitude of indigenous people is part of that sanitation. You write a history of English Wampanoag relations turned the bedtime story of the Thanksgiving myth into a nightmare. The European mariners called explorers by historians were in fact slavers who raided the Wampanoag coast for years before the pilgrim's arrival, capturing people for sale to distant places of which they had never heard. The Plymouth colonists were no better. Despite their claims to piety, they introduced themselves to the Wampanoag by desecrating graves and robbing seed corn from underground storage barns. Nevertheless, Massasoit, the tribal leader, extended a peaceful hand to the newcomers, not out of innate friendliness, but pity. And because his people needed allies against the Narragansett, Indian rivals after the Wampanoags suffered a devastating epidemic introduced by Europeans. This horror was the dark background to the supposed first Thanksgiving. What happens to our understanding of our national origin when we erase slavery 
thievery and all the attacks and violence from the pilgrims. When, I, when, I, when I'm a little kid and I'm looking up at a pilgrim with all those buckles, I never really st- understood all those buckles. But when I, when, <laughs> right. I, when, when I looked at them, I just looked at them as, I don't know, buckle salesmen. I didn't know what they really did. What happens when we erase slavery from the history of pilgrims? The native actors, and for that matter, the English actors, become caricatures of themselves. In the in the Thanksgiving myth, friendly Indians, and there's no explanation for why they're friendly, and there's usually no tribal identification of who they are, um, reach out to the pilgrims, not because they want a defensive alliance, not because they want trade, but because supposedly they wanted to gift their country to foreigners. And the whole point of the exercise is to have native people voluntarily cede their territory so that the United States can become a beacon of, of liberty and, and Christianity and democracy. And then after the dessert is served, the Indians just disappear. There's no explanation of where they went, if anywhere, of how the history of the relationship between these two peoples went after after the meal. Um, so you know, again, these people just become shadows of of themselves, and it doesn't for, telling the history in that way, in that mythical way, doesn't require us to think hard about how how torturous it really was about how bloody it was about how violent colonialism is by its very nature. And that, that foundation is the bedrock of our country. You write the dishes had barely been cleared for the first Thanksgiving before a litany of English crimes began to mount. Atrocities like the New England colonists' 1637 massacre of the Pequots of Mystic Fort, which which Connecticut and Massachusetts memorialized the day of Thanksgiving. Cheating Indians out of their land, hurting them into reservations, and making them trespassers in their own country. Exploiting Indian poverty and English control of the courts to force Indians into servitude. Degrading Indians by calling them savages at every opportunity. The moral of the first Thanksgiving was that the English and their descendants betrayed the Wampanoags who had once befriended them in their time of need. So is the real story of Thanksgiving that of betrayal? And is the lesson for Native Americans a reminder that white people cannot be trusted, that the United States cannot be trusted? Is this nothing more than a reminder to indigenous Americans that white people cannot be trusted? Well, I think that's the that's been the native critique, and I think it's been an apt critique of the way that white people have been uh, telling the Thanksgiving myth and for hundreds of years. And uh, you know, let me be clear uh, to your listeners: uh, native people have been confronting white Americans with the hypocrisy of their sanitized history since the 1600s. They've been quite vocal about all that. Um, but there's no reason why this false history has to be attached to Thanksgiving. It, that wasn't the case for during the 1600s or the 1700s or the first several decades of, of the 1800s. Indeed, uh, you know, uh, Americans had been celebrating Thanksgiving without any reference to pilgrims and Indians for quite a long time, for actually longer than Americans have been making that association. That association is an invention of the late 1800s. And, you know, we were talking earlier about the way the North 
has uh, uh, sanitized its own history. This invention came at a time when when Anglo-Protestants in the Northeast felt like their cultural authority was slipping away. They felt like it was slipping away because there was an influx of immigrants, non-Protestant immigrants from parts of Europe that hadn't been represented in the United States in force up, up to that time. Um, they felt like it was slipping away because the country was expanding to the West. Um, and they wanted to distance themselves from what contemporaries cons- considered to be the black and Indian problems, you know, the black problem being reconstruction in the South and the Indian problem being the, the U S Indian wars of the great plains and the Rocky mountain West. So this false Thanksgiving myth was an invention of mostly Anglo Protestant new Englanders who wanted to hold up their ancestors as the founding fathers of the country. Well, look, here we are, a century and a half later. Um, we don't need to do their bidding any longer. We can get together with family and friends and be thankful for the goodness in our lives without propagating a false history. And I think a damaging one at that. A, a false history, granted, but how well did that uh, invention of Thanksgiving in, the 18, in 1863, when the country was divided, how well did that work at bringing the country back together? How well does it work as a tool of national unity? I, it has worked for white people um, for the better part of a century and a half. And, and it's you know, at the time, uh, Southerners in particular were quite resistant at taking up the celebration of what they considered to be a Yankee holiday. Thanksgiving was a Yankee holiday. Um, but eventually it took hold. And I think one of the reasons it took hold in the late 1800s and early 20th century was, again, a widespread white Protestant anxiety over non-Protestant European immigrants uh, to the country, Catholic, Jewish, uh, Eastern Orthodox, and, and the like. Um, I, I think it also, it also took hold when it did, because the, what that myth does is it asks a vari- Americans from a variety of backgrounds to identify with the pilgrims as we, and to think of the Native people as they, so that even in a classroom full of Europeans from various ethnic backgrounds, the children would be asked to see the pilgrims as my forefathers. And that's part of the way that people with last names like mine, Silverman, would be indoctrinated into conceiving of themselves as white people. And so I think that's another reason why this myth has taken hold the way that it has. You write, the point is that the national origin myth upholds the traditional social order by teaching that the rulers came by their position heroically, righteously, and even with the blessing of the divine. Such themes are favored by those guarding their privilege against the supposed barbarians at the gate. 
the blessing of the divine. Is there something akin to an adoration of monarchy within the national origin myth and say through the lens of the framers of the constitution and the founding founding fathers? Is, is there something where we inherited certain aspects of the monarchy within our national origin myth, despite being uh, our national origin being about overthrowing a monarchy? I, I think all political and social orders uh, want to buttress their authority by trying to indoctrinate people with the idea that God or whoever their spiritual authority is uh, want, wants that particular social order to exist. In American history, yeah, whereas in European history, one would have the divine right of kings, right? That, um, that the king uh, and or queen is the representative of God on earth. The way that's been democratized in the American setting is through manifest destiny. The idea that um, God blessed the United States to expand, not at the expense of indigenous people, not for the purposes of spreading slavery, but to spread liberty, democracy, and Christianity, and thereby salvation through through its ex- its expansion. The Thanksgiving is very much an iteration of that ideology of manifest destiny. I mean, here we have Native people voluntarily ceding their country uh, to these pilgrims, you know, with, without any bloodshed. God wants in the in the myth. God wants that to happen. Um, think of uh, you know the songs that accompany the grade school Thanksgiving pageants, which have been so common in American schools for the better part of of a century. Songs like My Country Tis of Thee, right? This history is blessed by God. You mentioned attempts on a peninsula at uh, Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts beginning in the 1860s and 1870s to, quote, finally make Indians as a group vanish as nature supposedly intended by bringing their land into the market and forcing them to scatter and assimilate among the larger American population. Vanishing as nature had intended by bringing their land into market, which makes the market a natural function. How often do we accept crimes against humanity as simply nothing more than the outcome of market forces? Does the market make even genocide invisible? Is Thanksgiving about erasing the violence of the market? Right. So one of the the most sinister aspects of white American dispossession of indigenous people has involved taking Native people's communal land holdings, dividing them into private property tracts, and then subjecting those private property tracts to taxation and confiscation for debt. Now, it, you know, private property has been a basic pillar of white American society since the beginning of, of the United States. Uh, but for indigenous people, uh, the private property regime is an assault on their peoplehood because when communal lands are divided and sub- subject to taxation and confiscation for debt, it's a guarantee that at least a sizable portion of the people will have to scatter as they fall into financial straits. 
Uh, communal landholding um, usually doesn't uh, provide the mechanisms for many people in the community to get far ahead of the group, but it also means that not many people fall all that far behind. So it allows the group as a group to stay together. And in the case that you're mentioning, in the late 1860s and, and the 1870s, Massachusetts uh, divvied up uh, the half dozen or so Wampanoag reservations uh, throughout the state, granted citizenship to indigenous people, and then declared them no longer to be recognized as Indians. Um, and at that time, being Indian and being a citizen were considered antithetical to one another. The white authorities who who pushed these policies had absorbed the ideology of manifest destiny and trafficked in this notion that Native people were indeed as supposedly savage pagan peoples, inferior peoples. They were supposedly destined by God to disappear. And so the fact that giving up their communal lands um, would uh, speed this process along was seen as a way of promoting destiny, not as an assault on indigenous people. We often think of uh, Christmas as a very commercialized, marketized holiday. But from what I was reading in your writing, it seems that Thanksgiving is very much along in that space as well. You write the lionization of the pilgrims also grew out of Plymouth Town's attempt to drum up civic pride and tourism. Beginning in 1769, the community's old colony club began holding an annual Forefathers Day on the December 22nd anniversary of the pilgrim landing on Plymouth Rock, as legend would have it. You write at this event, speeches, toasts, and promotional materials would eulogize the once obscure pilgrims as the symbolic founders of New England and even the United States by virtue of their religious ideals, commitment to democracy, and resolve to build their colony in the face of adversity. This filiopietistic publicity campaign gradually took hold in Massachusetts, then spread nationally through Yankee writing and orations at the very same time the pilgrims were beginning to associate Thanksgiving with the Pilgrim Saga. So the Pilgrim Indian myth of Thanksgiving is the outcome of a publicity campaign because we know how Santa, as we know the character, the Santa Claus character in the United States is an outcome of advertising by Coca-Cola, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is a creation of Montgomery Wards. To what extent are the uh, popular national origin myths of the United States or its culture driven by the market and results of nothing more than publicity and advertising, not any real events that actually happened? I wouldn't say it's nothing more, but I'd say that's an element of it. Um, and you know, Plymouth Town, um, to this very day, has a tourist indus- industry that depends on the linking of this 17th century history with the creation of the United States. And it needs to be a patriotic story in order to keep tourist families uh, coming uh, to the town and you know, patronizing hotels and restaurants and and the like. It's a you know, the, the real history, uh, which Wampanoags insist should be part of Plymouth's uh, Plymouth's interpretation, um, is represented to some degree at a famous Plymouth tourist site, Plymouth Plantation, a living history museum dedicated. Uh, to the Wampanoag-English relationship. Uh, But even there, where you have some serious historians on staff, and where I must add, you have a number of Wampanoag people uh, on staff. Uh, Even there, uh, that institution um, 
can't confront this history in all of its bloody detail because if it were to do so, it would lose a sizable portion of its audience. Um, in other words, the truth hurts. Did settlers, did, does America, did we need uh, victory over Native Americans even through genocide before we could incorporate Native Americans into our national origin myths? Was, was that incorporation of Native Americans in our national origin myths, was that the final step, final site of subjugation of Native Americans by colonialists? Did we need to wipe them out before we could let them into our myths? I think so. Um, look, I, I, I'm often asked by uh, by audiences who have read this book or, or heard me talk, couldn't it have gone better than it did? And my answer is no, it could not. Uh, indigenous people, whether in North America or anywhere else around the world, didn't concede to their own subjugation, didn't concede to foreigners seizing their lands. And, and asserting their jurisdiction over, over the indigenous inhabitants of the place. Everywhere around the world, including in New England and in North America more generally, indigenous people resisted. So if the Europeans were going to establish colonies and later uh, to establish a, a nation state which claimed the continent, it was going to be bloody work in terms of uh, in terms of relations with with indigenous people, um, and while indigenous people were resisting, uh, one could not expect uh, those against whom they were resisting to incorporate them into a national origin. The subjugation had to be finished before that process could occur. What's wrong with? imbuing Native Americans with a sense of kindness and care within the U.S. origin myth about Thanksgiving, about how they opened their hearts and their homes and their fields to, uh, to the pilgrims, to the colonists. What's wrong with, give, with imbuing Native Americans with that sense of kindness and care? Well, first of all, it's not true. Um, that's an you issue. So that, as a historian, I take offense at that narration. I mean, look, you know, de depicting the Wampanoags as just innately friendly when they reached out to the English uh, robs the entire robs them of the context in which they were operating. Um, Usamequin, their sachem, who was in charge of, of this diplomacy, um, faced a great deal of opposition within his own people. Uh, look, the fact of the matter is that they had suffered a century of of European raids on the coast, uh, in which Europeans. Uh, very often enslaved Wampanoag people and sold them overseas or brought them back to England for training as interpreters and guides. Um, so you know, understandably, Wampanoag people were quite um, uh, wary of Europeans and opposed to them establishing permanent settlements along their, their coast. Uzumaku made this decision um, not because he had some kind of love for, uh, for the Europeans, but because his people had suffered a terrible epidemic disease between 1616 and 1619, just before the arrival of the Mayflower. His people um, were hobbled, and their Narragansett tribal rivals to the West were trying to subjugate them to tributary status. So, you know, this Thanksgiving myth does violence to the actual history. But I think more importantly... The Thanksgiving myth makes light of indigenous people's very real historical traumas, and it depicts the only authentic Indians as frozen in time, 
at the moment of contact and blinds other blinds Americans to the existence of native people in modern times. It blinds, it blinds modern Americans to the way that native people have resisted colonization across the centuries, the way that they made it through the apocalypse in which they were really uh, uh, staring genocide in the face um, and the ways that they have adapted to become part of contemporary society. Native people are not some kinds of subjugated foreigners. They are our countrymen and women. They're part of our national fabric. And we shouldn't be propagating a historical lie tied to a national holiday that does damage to any part of our national community. You write, the name Day of Mourning harked back not only to the recent National Days of Mourning held throughout the United States after the assassinations of President John F. Kennedy in 1963 and Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. It also evoked the eulogy on King Philip written in 1836 by William Appus, a Pequot preacher and activist who served the Wampanoag community of Mashpee. In his eulogy, Appus declared the December 22nd, 1620 anniversary of the Pilgrim's Landing in the 4th of July to be days of mourning and not joy for Indians because the evils whites had done to them. That's 1836. So we touched on this a little bit earlier. So how new is an understanding in the United States that the United States had done a horrible wrong to Native Americans? Because I, I can't help but think have did the colonists did they actively erase Native Americans from their history, or were they simply unaware of Native American history? Because why pay attention to a civilization that you're going to not only condescend to, but you're going to destroy? Well, I think all of those factors are are work here. I think generations of let's be clear, white historians and a disproportionate number of them, a number of them were trained at northeastern universities like like Harvard and, and Yale, believed that the point of history was to tell a narrative of progress. And the reason that native people weren't important in that narrative is that native people were supposedly primitives. They weren't part of human society's march towards progress, towards betterment. So what was the point in telling their side of, of the story? Um, I think for a great many Americans, they were just passive recipients of, of this kind of history and weren't taught to think about it critically. But as you know, Native people have been criticizing this kind of, this kind of whitewashing since the very inception of the United States. Indeed, all the way back uh, to the Revolutionary Era and before then, during the, during the colonial period. William Apis, a Pequot minister to the Mashpee Wampanoags of Cape Cod, was one of the most eloquent uh, uh, proponents of, of this view. And he's the first one to introduce the idea that on the 4th of July and on December 22nd, the anniversary of the Pilgrim's Landing at Plymouth, Native people should pause and mourn what they had lost. I should note, by the way, um, A. Apis made this speech in front of an all-white audience in Boston <laughs> in the middle of the period of Andrew Jackson's removal of the Eastern tribes. Um, and one of the reasons he chose that particular setting is that white New Englanders were among Andrew Jackson's fiercest critics. 
What APHIS was saying is, don't get on your high horse. Look in your own backyard at the way you treat your own indigenous neighbors. You write that it's a lazy and downright wrong to dismiss the National Day of Mourning as a spectacle without substance. No doubt some participants over the years have sought public publicity and got it for such actions as placing KKK sheets on the statue of the Plymouth Colony Governor William Bradford. Yet the point of such actions has been to punctuate the deeper messages of grief and solidarity for Native Americans and understanding compassion and the value of daily gratitude among Americans of all descriptions. I have no problem obviously, with recognizing Thanksgiving as a national day of mourning. But do you think capitalism, will consumerism, will tradition of gluttony allow it, a tradition that helps the economy, will allow it to change from a a tradition of overeating to one of mourning? There will be resistance to confronting the real history of this period. Uh, There will be resistance to what I think is the real solution here, which is to separate what I think is, you know, a, a lovely act of getting together with family and friends and reflecting on the goodness of our lives from the false history. There will always be reactionaries who want to hold up uh, histories, however untrue, just because they they reinforce the social order. As you note, there are capitalist interests that want to uh, keep this myth attached to the holiday. And so ultimately, it will depend on an educated public insisting that uh, we tell history as difficult as it might be in all of its truth. Um, That's how democracy should work. That's how it should work. Uh, Is celebrating Thanksgiving sadistic because you write thanksgiving eclipses columbus day is the one time of year when the country considers the native american role in the nation's past it is bad enough to have gotten the story so wrong for so long it is inexcusable to continue the annual tradition of having a phalanx of teachers politicians and television producers traffic in the thanksgiving myth and homeowners uh, and shopping centers sport decorations of happy indians and pilgrims these practices dismiss native people's real historical traumas in favor of depicting their ancestors it's consenting to colonialism. To call the consequences harmless is to ignore the chorus of Native Americans, our fellow Americans, after all, who say the hurt is profound, particularly to their children. So is celebrating Thanksgiving sadistic? Is it the deriving pleasure from inflicting, in this case, psychic pain, suffering, or humiliation on others? I don't think the intent is there. Um, I think it's neglect more than anything else. I think most most Americans don't recognize that uh, Native people are part of, part of modern society and therefore don't take their, um, their feelings into account. Um, I think it's cruel by neglect. I don't think most people are intentionally trying to hurt their, their Native American countrymen and women. But I, I think the way that we celebrate the holiday is damaging in another way as well that might not be so readily apparent. What the Thanksgiving myth teaches is white proprietorship in the nation. It doesn't just neglect the Native American rule, but it teaches that white people were destined to rule this country and that from the start they were in control. And, you know, the only way that we're going to come to terms with how we've we've come to this white nationalist moment with a white nationalist president promoting policies that are attacking people of color in every iteration 
around this country is to recognize that that mentality is upheld by a thousand different buttresses. And I would contend that the Thanksgiving myth is one of those buttresses. So has that myth made the United States sustainable up to this point, or is it the greatest obstacle, the greatest threat to that sustainability as we move forward? Well, I, I think we can ask the question, did the United States have to be a nation of white supremacy? I, there, have been, uh, there have been historical figures who have contested that vision since the very beginning of the country. Um, and it's a fight that continues to this, this very day. What I can say is that the Thanksgiving myth has been a buttress of white supremacy up to this time. Uh, and I, I would venture to guess that there is a sizable percentage of Americans, maybe even a majority, that when confronted uh, with the truth of, of this history and the untruths of the Thanksgiving myth, uh, would concede to the point that we shouldn't be indoctrinating our, our children uh, with these ideas, that what we need as a country is to confront our history, warts and all, and learn from it. you write the question was and still is how to move forward. But how possible is it to move forward when there are so many who are in complete denial of Native genocide and white betrayal? How possible is it to move forward when there seems to be a resurgence in this belief or maybe, uh, you know, at least a comfort in the projection of believing a white supremacy and privilege? Do you see any signs that we are more open to actually reconsidering our national origin myth as what it is, a myth? I think half the country is, and I think half the country isn't. And I think we have a major fight on our hands. Uh, I think the white nationalist moment is in no small degree a a backlash to the fact that uh, white people aren't going to represent a majority in this country for long um, and will have to cede a significant amount of their power to that basic demographic truth. I have found that there is a a sizable portion of the American public that is open to this message that, that I'm promoting. Um, I've seen it in, in my readers. I've seen it in people who have attended talks that I've given. I've seen it in the fact that radio shows like yours and many others are interested in, in this story. I'm not, suge- I'm not naive. I'm not suggesting that um, achieving these goals will be easy. It won't. It's going to require fi- uh, a fight. Um, and uh, we just need to keep pushing, pushing our views. Um, and I, my, I'm hopeful um, that if we do that and uh, if we don't tire out um, and if we don't uh, bow to convenience, um, that the truth will win out at the end of the day. First of all, I want to thank you for referring to our show as a regular show, because I really don't think it's all that regular. Uh, but uh, I got one last question for you, David. We have been speaking with historian David J. Silver- Silverman, author of This Land is Their Land, the Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving. One last question, as we do with all of our guests. Our final question is the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. So we should should celebrate this as or memorialize this as a day of mourning, not as a day of thanks. We should remember that this is a day that reinforces myths that prop up white supremacy and white privilege and continue the legacy of racism and colonialism that Native Americans experience each and every day. So, David, what do we serve at Thanksgiving Day meal when it's a day of mourning? 
<laughs> that's a that's a great story. Look, I, many Wampanoags who I know celebrate Thanksgiving. Uh, let's be clear. Um, you know, I'm not trying to um, discourage anybody from getting together with family and friends to reflect on the goodness of their of their lives. But if we're going to attach the story of pilgrims and Indians to the holiday, and I don't think we need to, we need to get the story straight. And what that does, I think, is it, it turns that story from one of celebration to one of reflection. And uh, I think many people will reflect in the spirit of mourning, which I believe is entirely appropriate to the real uh, details of the story. And mourning can be a very, very, very powerful emotion, powerful tool. We spoke a couple of years ago with Cindy Milstein, who has a book out about rebellious mourning and the radical power of mourning. So people can go and look up our interview with Cindy Milstein at thisishell.com and see what David is talking about when it comes to how important mourning can be. David, I really appreciate your writing. Uh, This book is fascinating, and I really do look forward to having you back on the show again because all of your writing that I've seen so far on uh, Native Americans has been spectacular. So thank you so much for being on our show this holiday week. Thank you for having me and thanks for fighting the good fight. All right. Take care, David. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. This week's question from hell is what are you majoring in to get a job in the real world? What are you majoring in to get a job in the real world? This week's winner gets a book we featured on the show earlier this week, Eli Meyerhoff's Beyond Education, Radical Studying for Another World. You can hear that interview right now at thisishell.com and you can leave your response to our question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio alex how are listening listeners answering this week's question from hell now what are you majoring in to get a job in the real world jason f says failure <laughs> jeff m says griftology <laughs> dan o says post-dating checks oh that's a good one zachary w says fictitious market regulation <laughs> what are you majoring in to get a job in the real world Stephen s says bootlicking john e says majoring in something to get a job is stupid i know john uh, David R. says, underwater fire maintenance. Benjamin C. says, submarine screen door insulation. <laughs> I so, knew that was yeah, next. I knew the Borscht belts uh, <laughs> making their way to this <laughs> comment section here. Wow. Marco G. says, a major in corporate demanded skills and a PhD in total lack of engagement in the, oh my God, I'm surrounded by idiots university. <laughs> Mark C. says, rent seeking. <laughs> David T. says, squeegeology. <laughs> That's a good one. And uh, that should be coming with bucket carrying as What well. are you majoring in to get a job in the real world? Borky B. says, shooting guns, driving off-road, <laughs> and finding water in the desert. <laughs> Prescient S. says, principles of pay to play and call it a foundation. <laughs> Harold J. says, being Rudy Giuliani's personal insurance policy salesman. <laughs> John T. says, key gripping. Yeah. Mark C. says, it's a double major, crossing guard with emphasis on dealing with self-operated vehicles and crematorium operators. (laughs) What are you majoring in to get a job in the, quote, real world? John C. says, I'm majoring in debt peonage, though I may pursue an indentured servitude degree if I can afford it. (laughs) Uh, Braden S. says, whatever the army will pay for, I need to learn how to survive more than half a day outside the house while I'm at it. Gorilla G says, marketing and brand management in nutritional entomology. All right. That's pretty good eating bugs. Yeah. Uh, De- Dennis H says, trying to earn a degree in being born rich. <laughs> uh, Sarah A says, self-promotion and side hustles. Wally R says, alcoholism with a minor in defeatism. <laughs> Chandler H says, not a Marxist, STEM studies for business profits. And finally, Olin P says, my actual master's program is called Digital Living. 
So here's hoping it allows me to feed a, off of cat memes so I won't even need a job. <laughs> it wasn't Theron's degree in music technology and then that degree disappeared from Northwestern University. I think that was. I think it was one of his, I think it was his master's. Um, and as far as the person who was talking about post-dating checks, this isn't really related to post-dating checks, but this is a crime that you can commit. And I'll, it's a really easy one. Uh, if you need something to be postmarked with a date that was earlier than the date in question. For instance, if you want something to have a postmark from, let's say, three days ago that you are mailing out today, go to any of your mailing stores. Don't go to a post office. Go to any of these mailing stores. You know what I'm talking about. And just tell the look around the place, make sure it's empty, and just tell the person, I need this to be postmarked with this date. They'll do it every time. I've never had anybody say, nah, I can't do that. They, it's not even like, hey, could you give me some money to do it? They just do it. So if you ever need anything with a postmark that is in the past, go to your local mailing store. Make sure it's empty of, you know, managerial types and snoopy people and ask them to postmark it for whatever date you want. It's a public service announcement from us here at This Is Hell to tell you how to commit a federal crime. It's time for a listener feedback that has been sent to us at chuck at thisishell.com. Stephanie writes, hi, Chuck, you are a favorite of mine. I assume when it comes to the radio show, but if it's in any other capacity, you're welcome. I listen when I can and I always find myself thinking about your interviews long afterwards. I know, me too. It's really annoying. I have a suggestion. Please interview Corey Morningstar. I follow her on Twitter, and though I'm not always sure of what she is saying, I have a feeling it may be important. That is the greatest endorsement ever. Not really sure what she's saying. I have a feeling it's important. Thanks, Stephanie. Corey Morningstar does sound familiar, but I had to look it up. Corey is an independent investigative journalist who writes at the hellishly named website, theartofannihilation.com. Who knew that theartofannihilation.com would be available. We had about that URL a long time ago. At the site, there is an introduction to Corey's work that states, as Corey Morningstar captures the simulacrum in her multi-part series on the non-profit industrial complex, domesticating the populace is a fait accompli, and the only question remaining is what will happen if and when capitalist activism is seen for what it is. By following the money from aristocratic derivatives to embodiments of false hope like Avaz, move on, and change, Morningstar steps through the looking glass to expose how NGOs have become a key tool of global dominance using social media as a means of social manipulation. So that's an emphatic yes, Stephanie. We'll do everything we can to get Corey Morningstar on the show, and everyone should check out her writing at theartofannihilation.com. Why wasn't The Art of Annihilation a really bad band in the 70s and 80s? Kerwin emailed suggesting a guest, and the guest's name is Kerwin. Dear Chuck, I wanted to send you a note about my new book, which sharply critiques drug courts and therapeutic communities, titled Enforcing Freedom, Drug Courts, Therapeutic Communities, and the Intimacies of the State by Kerwin K. If it seems like it might fit, I'd love to participate on This Is Hell. I'm also looking for people who might be interested in writing a review of the book, whether you or other people you might know. If someone there might consider writing a review, let me know, and I'll have the press send a reviewer's copy. 
Otherwise, you can still get a 30% discount on the book by using the code CUP30. So this is out of Oxford University Press. You just look up the book, the book uh, Enforcing Freedom, and you put in CUP30, and you get a 30% discount on the book. In any event, I hope all of you are well, and I want to thank you for your work. All the best, Kerwin. So I forwarded your email to Alex, and we'll hopefully have Kerwin to discuss, possibly, maybe, maybe, possibly, his topic, drug courts, soon. Because that's something we were reporting on at the very beginning of our show back in 1996 when we talked about the uh, alternative drug courts in Chicago's Austin neighborhood. So, yes, it would be great to get back to alternative forms of justice, covering it on the show. We also want to cover restorative justice more as well. That's listener feedback. You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com or message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio or DM us via Twitter at thisishellradio. We hope to see you at our weekly Wednesday night meet and greet This Is Hell office hours at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Little India neighborhood tomorrow night. More than a meet and greet, This Is Hell office hours is a think and drink and this week should draw a big crowd because it's one of the busiest bar nights of the year, Thanksgiving Eve. In other words, it'll be a great night to meet other listeners of This Is Hell. Join us tomorrow evening, Thanksgiving Eve, for a very special beginning of the holidays. This Is Hell office hours at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon, the bar downstairs from this here studio. Don't forget our annual This Is Hell holiday office party happens on Wednesday evening, December 18th, beginning at 6 p.m. as well. And going until somebody does something very embarrassing. Is your office too cheap to throw a holiday party? Make our holiday office party your holiday office party and invite all your co-workers to the This Is Hell holiday office party. Don't particularly like everyone at your office? Then invite the cool kids to the This Is Hell holiday office party. Does your work not have an office and you all work together from your own homes? Then invite all your co-workers, all your online co-workers to the annual This Is Hell holiday office party where we promise everyone who attends will get a This Is Hell related gift. Need a last minute gift? We'll also have all of our merch, This Is Hell merchandise available. That's Wednesday, December 18th beginning at 6 p.m. and running until who the hell knows. Don't forget you can subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. And if you do, then you get $5 off each and every piece of our merchandise when you go to thisishell.com and click on support. And on Friday's Patreon podcast at 10 a.m., I'm going to be announcing something special for subscribers to This Is Hell. It's about the future of the show, future content on the show, what we're going to be doing maybe in the next few weeks but definitely by the beginning of the new year and how we need your help in a new segment or actually an old segment that we're bringing back here to this is hell but you can only hear about that by subscribing to our patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell alex who's on tomorrow's wednesday's live one hour stream beginning at 10 in the morning Alyssa Battistoni will be on to talk about uh, the book that she co-authored with everyone else that we're going to be talking about with on the book in the next few weeks, uh, Planet to Win, The Case for the Green New Deal. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, Alex, Jerry, I want to thank today's guest, David J. Silverman, author of This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth County, and The Troubled History of Thanksgiving. And in case you missed it, yesterday our guest was political theorist and decolonial abolitionist, as he calls himself at his Twitter feed, Eli Meyerhoff, author of Beyond Education, Radical Studying for Another World. And this week's Hangover Cure is Campari and Espresso, which sounds absolutely divine. 
I also want to thank Ronaldo for doing Rotten History. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. There is only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. That demon. No. Uh, <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. 